Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. This week, we are going to talk about normalized narcissism, everyday vulgarity, and when charity turns to sophistry. So let's start with narcissism, because we never talk about that on the show. It's an undercover topic, and I'm going to do better. <laughs> it, it's easy to overlook how narcissistic our culture has become because it's come on gradually. Until the past couple of years when it's really accelerated, this has come on gradually. It's the frog slowly boiling in the pot. It does really seem to have peaked from about 2015 onward with a big acceleration during COVID and our reaction to it. The, the displays of egotism and self-aggrandizement and self-centered behavior that are treated as simply normal and unremarkable today, that is itself remarkable. And if, if we could all turn the clock back to our 2014 selves, we'd instantly see how remarkable it was. The stuff we talk about on this show, a lot of it, can you imagine that happening in this quantity even 15 years ago? And I'm at the age now where 15 years ago seems, in, in my mind, that's relatively recently. I realize that if you're younger, it seems longer ago. But I'm telling you, the older you get, uh, the more it's going to seem like yesterday. <laughs> um, here's an example. I want to show you a short video here. And there's a debate going on on social media, or there was when I pulled this clip, about whether what we are about to see and listen to is parody or if it's meant seriously. So let's um, let's take a listen to this gentleman. <laughs> Do you have any idea how inherently discriminatory this statement is? In my video, it's very clear that I am non-binary and I'm not a man. And I'm getting sick and fucking tired of cis women immediately seeing someone with a beard and equating that as a man and invalidating my experiences as someone who is non-binary because you equate me as a man because you're transphobic. People who are non-binary do not owe you androgyny because your statement is inherently dismissing all the discrimination that I face because I am not a man. Because believe it or not, even people who are assigned male at birth who are non-binary get shit on by men too. So please realize that your statements like this are inherently incredibly discriminatory against people who are non-binary. You're hiding behind misogyny in order to support your own transphobia. That is how these statements are read to anyone who is non-binary with a beard. So until you actually acknowledge what you're missing in intersectionality, this is legit punching down. <laughs> Immediately seeing someone with a beard and equating me as a man. Equating me as a man? And sweetheart, no. There are no men shitting on you. If you're getting shit on, you're either in a fetish club or it's your obnoxious personality. Now, listeners, here's my question. What, why does that have to be a parody, as so many people have told me? Why is it unbelievable? 
as far as I'm concerned, it's not un unbelievable. It's exactly what these people say. It sounds exactly like what they say every single day. Now, it could be a parody. I don't think it is, but it could be. But it really doesn't matter. Because the fact that there's a question illustrates the problem itself. It doesn't even need to be real in order to show the problem. This is where we are. Can you imagine this 15 years ago? Here's another example of normalized narcissism. And, and it's, it's going to get into, it shades into the next topic that I'm going to talk about, everyday vulgarity. This is from Bon Appetit magazine. Take a look at this social media promo image on your screen here. It's, again, another piece of faceless art. There's a human figure in there who appears to be partially made of butter. Um, I assume, melted butter, I assume. Uh, no facial features. And the legend on the sign is, what making cheese taught me about being trans? <laughs> what making cheese taught me about being trans? Bon Appetit magazine. And following on in this same social media thread, also from Bon Appetit magazine, is... This quotation, fermentation is hope for trans folks. If people can conceptualize cucumbers becoming pickles, then they can grasp a trans person's name change. If the possibility of camembert, parmesan, and ricotta all exist within milk, then think of all the possible genders to choose from. Okay. <laughs> You can call camembert parmesan, but that won't make camembert parmesan. Those are two different cheeses. One is soft and creamy, and the other one is comes out of a shaker. Yes, it comes out of a shaker. I buy the shaker cheese. I come from the trailer court. Don't question me. Fermentation is hope. Oh, my God. So... <laughs> So this is Bon Appetit promoting its its trans contributors. I don't know what this has to do with. I'm not. No, I'm not going to say that. It has nothing to do with cooking or food preparation. Nothing at all. It's just like the nonprofit sector. All of the original missions of all of the organizations, whether it's feeding uh, puppies, getting. Uh, baby formula to uh, poor working mothers. They've all abandoned their primary mission to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, trans, someone's truth, blah, blah, blah. So they're promoting their contributor, whose name is, um, I'm probably going to mess it up, Jazyat Singh. And I took a look at what kinds of things Jazz Yacht, I am so sorry, I really am. I'm sure that I'm actually butchering this name and I'm not doing it on purpose. I am making fun of him, but not by mispronouncing his name. Um, <laughs> fermentation is hope for trans folk. You are not milk. 
Nobody is milk. You are only fermenting mentally. It's not real. <laughs> Take a look at Milk Self. Here's uh, Jazz Yacht Singh. This is his social media bio. Got a picture of a guy here, and it says, he, him, Indian queer illustrator from Delhi, drawing everywhere. Just, just drawing everywhere, you guys. Just drawing everywhere. I mean, I just cannot stop drawing. So what is he drawing everywhere? Well, stuff like this. Um, a bad cartoon picture of an obese naked woman shown from the belly up with her titties out holding a broken heart in her palms. And the legend is, what do you do with a broken heart? Well, apparently you cup it lovingly underneath your pendulous breasts. That's what you do with it. What else does he draw? Um, more stuff like this. Uh, I labeled this naked dude drawing. It's a line drawing of a naked man <laughs> with an improbably small head, like a really, really small head. <laughs> and he's sitting there sort of half reclining with his hand near his junk. I mean, and it's ugly. It's, it's just bad. It's, it's, it's not bad art. It's not art, is it? And if that weren't enough, he also draws pictures of naked dudes from behind. Um, and as you can see here on my little script, you can't see it, but that's what makes it funny. Um, it says, graphic A7, ass from behind. And it's, it's, it's a picture, it's a picture of a quasi man on his hands and knees viewed from the back so that you can see his ass crack and the back of his, um, his nut sack. Now, gentlemen, here's the deal. We need them, they're important, and they can be a little bit fun, but testicles are not visually attractive. They're not, that's not something that you put on your body as the loss leader to get customers in to buy the good stuff. <laughs> no, 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 they're not pretty. Ball sacks aren't attractive, not from the front and not from the rear. How did we get here? How does a mainstream cooking magazine, one of the oldest still being published, Bon Appetit, how do they end up publishing this stuff? Why aren't they embarrassed to be associated with a cheap cartoon pornographer? Because that's what this is. It's cheap cartoon pornography. It's vulgar. And depending on your your sense of taste and decorum, you might even call it obscene. There's no shame in this culture anymore. There are no boundaries. There are no limits to what we call self-expression. And again, we come back to those kids are going to get a really hard lesson when they go out into the real work world and nobody puts up with this, right? Right? It looks like Jazz Yacht learned a really hard lesson, didn't he? Bone Appetit magazine absolutely wouldn't put up with that, would they? <laughs> you guys, they're the bosses now. Those kids that you kept it, um, I was going to say reassuring, but um, insisting we're never going to get away with this stuff. 
they're getting away with this stuff because they're now in the positions at companies and institutions where they make decisions. They are the manager. So last week, I talked about how our society hates children. We claim to love them, but we actually hate them. And if we don't hate them, we're indifferent to them as humans with actual consciousness and humans to whom we owe a duty of care. They are objects to be manipulated, and for many parents these days, they are trophies to collect, display, and ventriloquize through. Well-to-do gay men these days are notorious for this. We're seeing it all over the place. This year's hottest accessory is babies. Babies ordered on commission, babies custom grown in a woman's womb, then delivered up to strangers. Take a look at this photograph. It depicts two gay men of about 30 years old in a park, in a lovely park, standing in front of each other face to face holding hands. And it says at the top, our maternity shoot. The word maternity is in quotation marks. And they're not the only two subjects depicted in this photograph. There is a woman in the background in profile, a pregnant woman, the woman carrying her child, which they consider their child because they're buying it. That's their product. Down at the bottom, oh my god, their social media handle is at New York Surrogate. We did a <laughs> maternity shoot, and it came out great. Hashtag surrogacy. Hashtag gestational surrogate. Hashtag photography. Look at her. Look at the woman. Look at the mother standing in the background with her eyes downcast before her betters. She looks like a lady-in-waiting in the medieval court respectfully looking at the floor before her master. This is a joke to these guys. That's why they put maternity in quotation marks. It's a fucking joke to them. Even though there's an actual mother right there in the picture, who's only there as a prop to be silent to showcase the two of them, they still think this is funny. But lest you get too sympathetic for mommy here, there are not just two villains in this photograph. There are three villains. Mother is a villain, too. She is not being exploited. She doesn't live only in the passive voice. She is not being acted upon. She is not, in fact, an empty vessel waiting to be filled. She chose this. She's prostituting herself for money, but worse. She's not just selling her body. She's selling her baby. There is no first world woman in the West who's forced into trafficking her, trafficking her baby just to survive, as the feminists so constantly claim to us. But here's the worst piece of normalized narcissism that I've seen this week. Take a look at this photograph. This is from a pro-abortion protest that took place um, either a day or two after the US Supreme Court decision that struck down the earlier decision, Roe versus Wade. It is a picture of a woman and a man, a mother and a father, with three children. They appear to be three years old, four, five years old, five, six years old, okay? Young children. Mommy is standing with a sign that she's written. 
And the sign says, don't force this on anyone. This, don't force this on anyone. What's this? This is her children. This is her three beautiful children that she's presenting to the public as a burden with a sign at a pro-abortion protest. Now stop for a second. Think about what these children are thinking or think about what they will be thinking when they're a little bit older and they look back and see this. They're gonna think, my mother used us as stage props at a pro-abortion rally and called us a burden that shouldn't be forced on us. And don't, no, no. Don't tell, it doesn't say burden on the sign. Stop that. If you're thinking it, stop it. We all know what the implication is and so does this woman. That's taken care of. You know, it, the way, the way that mothers like this, deranged mothers like this, use the existence, the birth, the pregnancy, the bearing of their children is really disturbing. My mother did it a little bit differently, but it reminds me of something she very frequently said to me growing up. She did it in the opposite direction, but it's still the same thing. It's still narcissistic use of children. She would say, you know, your father wanted me to have an abortion, but I refused. I wouldn't do it because I wanted you so much. Now, I'm sure that some people will hear that, and at first glance, if one can be said to glance with, with the ears, might think what a sweet story that is. Nothing sweet about that at all. This was my mother aggrandizing herself by telling me that my father, who I never met, wanted me to be killed, but she wanted me so badly. So I owed her for my life. And that is, in fact, exactly what it turned into. Exactly. Because as an adult, when I finally put my foot down and kicked that bitch out of my life, I got a bunch of bullshit like, I gave you life. How dare you? You should be grateful to me that you were born. Mm-hmm. Yes, those words. Children who grew up with messages like this internalize the idea that they only exist on mother's whim. She can destroy you if she wants to. You had better praise her for her kind decision to allow you to live. A and just like in the last photograph, in this one, there, aren't, there isn't one villain there. There are two. There's a father there. A man in his 30s with those bloody ear gauges in that make him look like he's 16 years old with a skateboard. What are you doing, sir? What kind of morally castrated man allows a witch like this to use his children for such disgusting propaganda? What is wrong with you, men? We're going to have to talk more about men on this show. Putting up with this, saying nothing, indulging their narcissistic wives. We've got a real problem. 
And one of those is that we need to take a break. <laughs> I want to remind you, please, to subscribe on audio. We are a little bit behind, I know, and I apologize. Things are a little crazy, but we're getting back to it. We have audio-only episodes that come out during the week that do not come up here on YouTube. So check us out on your favorite podcast platform. For more conversation on the dark and disordered psychology that shapes today's cultural and political left, subscribe to our weekly audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and virtually anywhere else you get your podcasts. Let's learn to recognize these dynamics and call them what they are. Subscribe to Disaffected to learn how to break the spell. Welcome back. It is hot in here, okay? If you are new to this show, um, I suggest that you acclimate yourself to my complaining about the heat by going back about a year ago and watching just any episode from the summer because it is hot, hot, hot. And you're going to well, why don't you turn the air conditioning on? Because we're in a building that doesn't have central air everywhere. And so we've got these window air conditioners, but I have to turn them off because the sound runs in the background and I have to sit here and I have gone through so much powder, you guys. We're going to need to increase the budget line for matting powder. And I'll tell you one other thing before I get into my topic here. I get so cranky when it's hot. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're like, what do you, when it's hot. <laughs> so I'm listening to, <laughs> I'm listening to a podcast. Because um, somebody told me that this podcast that I haven't listened to before called No Agenda. I'm, I'm starting to listen to it now. Um, but somebody told me that they, they gave this show a shout out and liked the show. And I was like, well, that's really cool. Um, so I have a shout out to them. Thank you, Adam Curry and John C. Dvorak. I appreciate you liking the show. You want to hear something funny? Boys, let me tell you. I don't remember which one of you said this, but I'm driving in today to record this show. And I... And as I'm listening to your show, when you when you mentioned disaffected, you were, <laughs> he says, yeah, the, it's it's funny. The host sounds flamboyantly gay. And I immediately just went, how dare you? <laughs> and then I thought to myself, you stupid homo, you deliberately play up the gay on the show. And now you're going to get mad at them for telling you about yourself. See what kind of hypocrite I am. <laughs> I'm actually very much. <laughs> it's not flamboyantly gay. It's, as my grandmother would have said of Liberace, sensitive and artistic. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We're still on narcissism. And as we've talked about before, narcissism pays big time social currency right now, especially if you are a minority, a member of any minority class. I, I even was surprised when I saw this story that I'm going to share with you. This is from NBCNews.com, and it is a story about a Connecticut woman who is suing Harvard because Harvard is publishing a book on slavery using on the cover a photograph of two enslaved people from the 19th century that she says are her um, ancestors. So let's jump in. A Connecticut woman who says she's descended from slaves who are portrayed in a widely published 
who are portrayed in widely published historical photos owned by Harvard University can sue the school for emotional distress, Massachusetts's Massachusetts's highest court ruled Thursday. I hate mumbling and I hate stumbling over my words. Of course it's Massachusetts, of course. Ready for more details? The state's Supreme Judicial Court partly vacated a lower court ruling that dismissed a complaint from Tamara Lanier over photos she says depict her enslaved ancestors. The images are considered some of the earliest that show enslaved people in the U.S. The court concluded that the Norwich resident and her family can plausibly make a case for suffering, quote, neglect and indeed reckless infliction of emotional distress, end quote, from Harvard and remanded that part of their claim to the state superior court. The judges said the university failed to contact Lanier when it used one of the images on a book cover and prominently featured it in materials for a campus conference, even after she'd reached out about her ancestral ties. So what? Why does Harvard have an obligation to contact her? Under what system of rules is that an obligation that Harvard has? Regardless of whether she reached out about her alleged and asserted ancestral ties. And even if those ancestral ties are in fact real, why does Harvard have an obligation to contact her or to listen to her? Where does, it, where does this idea come from that, that this woman owns these images, which are in fact in the public domain? They're that old. Why? Why does she own them? Why is a court entertaining this? Because she's black and she says that she's distressed? Is that why? I think it is. Because something like this ought to be lapped out of court. Oh my God. More from the, um, more from this. Um, and I'm, I'm making a note here to Penelope, who is guest uh, producing today because Kevin is out of town satisfying his fetish for buying antique radios. <laughs> um, um, we are not yet, Penelope, to the part where we have another visual. I'm still reading. I'll let you know when we get there. <laughs> Kevin can read my mind, but I can't expect that of Penelope. Back to the article. In sum, despite its duty of care to her, Harvard cavalierly dismissed her ancestral claims and disregarded her requests, despite its own representations that would keep her informed of further developments, the ruling states. But the high court upheld the lower court's ruling that the photos are the property of the photographer who took them and not the subject themselves. I'm breaking in here. Yes, but that photographer is dead, and it is so long ago that there is no longer a copyright claim. No, the photographer's estate and descendants, if there are any such, do not actually own these images and can't say that they're copyrighted. They're in the public domain. Back to the court ruling. A descendant of someone whose likeness is reproduced in a daguerreotype would not therefore inherit any property right to that daguerreotype, the high court wrote in its ruling. I'm confused here. 
And what is this duty of care that the court is click? That's extraordinary. Did you hear that phrase that I that I read to you a few minutes ago? Dis I'll go back to it. In sum, despite its duty of care to her, Harvard cavalierly dismissed her ancestral claims. What duty of care? I'm serious. What duty of care? That's an extraordinary statement. A university has a duty of care to some random woman who says that one of the photographs they have that represent uh, people in history that's in the public domain are her ancestors, and so therefore they have a duty of care? Under what statutory regime? Under what ethical regime? None. This is nonsense. It doesn't exist. If it did, every publisher today would have a duty of care to every descendant of every person in a historical photograph. Does this apply to the Holocaust, too? The killing fields, Tiananmen Square? Where does it end? I'm serious. I'm not being glib. If it applies here, why does it not apply in every other one of these situations? <laughs> Again, can you imagine this happening 15 years ago? Much less likely, I think. So the court acknowledges that this woman, Miss Lanier, does not own the photos. And actually, no one does because they've fallen out of copyright. But she still, but Harvard still has a duty of care to her. <laughs> this makes no sense at all. It just doesn't make any sense. All right, Penelope, now we're ready to go to graphic B2, the quote from Miss Lanier's attorney. Lanier's attorney said Thursday's ruling was a, quote, historic win that marks one of the first times a court has ruled that descendants of enslaved people can seek accountability for what their ancestors endured. Wow. Wow. Descendants can seek accountability for how their ancestors were treated? Not them. The descendants were not treated this way. They did not suffer any of these things. But they can seek accountability on behalf of long-dead people? They can seek accountabilities from third parties like Harvard, who had nothing to do with whatever it was that her ancestors went through? Really? The sins of the father? That's, this is literally the sins of the father being inherited. Except, it, except not even, it's even more abstruse than that. Because it's a third party, it's a university that happens to have some of the original daguerreotypes. Accountability? This is insane. It's Marxist stuff. It's Marxist communist stuff. Got another quote here. Harvard is not the rightful owner of these photos and should not profit from them, Josh Koskoff said in a statement. This is the attorney uh, for Miss Lanier. As Tamara Lanier and her family have said for years, it is time for Harvard to let Renty and Delia come home. Apparently, these are the names of the individuals in this photograph. Well, Harvard is not the rightful owner, and neither is your client, Miss Lanier. She doesn't own them. She doesn't, not in any legal sense, not in any ethical sense. There's no nefarious profiting from their slavery going on here. It's a book cover. And speaking of book covers, we've talked before about how I believe that you should judge human books by the covers that they consciously don and present to you. So I ask you, I submit for your consideration and for your judgment the cover that Miss Lanier is showing us. Here's a photograph of her. 
notice anything? I do. Probably the most extreme example of Disney villainess eyebrows I've seen in at least a month. <laughs> Downturned mouth worn upside down with a sour expression. And do you notice something else? Do you notice the photograph over her shoulder? That's the photograph in question. She's not emotionally distressed about that because she's depicted with it, isn't she? No emotional distress there. This is about narcissistic ownership and ego gratification. It's not about anything more high-flown. No one is exploiting her ancestors. You can't actually exploit the dead just as you cannot libel the dead. She's exploiting her race and America's current delirium that has convinced us that black people in the United States in the 21st century are living in an apartheid state. And she's doing this to soak Harvard. That's why she's doing this. It's a cheap move. Next thing I want to talk about is Jordan Peterson being suspended from Twitter. And yeah, yeah, we're going to move on to that. <laughs> so, here's a headline from the National Post, one of uh, Canada's daily newspapers. Jordan Peterson, suspended from Twitter, said it might as well be a ban. Quote from him, I won't apologize. So what happened here? I'm going to read to you from the Post article. Jordan Peterson has been temporarily suspended from using Twitter after the social media platform said he violated the site's hateful conduct policy. On June 28th, the controversial author, clinical psychologist, and professor emeritus at the University of Toronto lost access to most of his Twitter account features because of a tweet he posted earlier in the week that used transgender actor Elliot Page's former name and suggested he had, quote, his breasts removed by a criminal physician. Ooh, Lord, it is hot in here. Sorry. <clears throat> Jordan Peterson didn't suggest that Elliot Page, Ellen Page, had his breasts removed by a criminal physician. He stated it, and he's correct. Ellen Page did have her breasts removed. Whether you want to think of that physician as criminal is a matter of semantics. Back to the article. The tweet was in response to an article posted to Twitter by the New York Post in which Page said he is proud to introduce a trans character in Umbrella Academy, the Netflix show he stars in. Here's Peterson says to the Post, I penned an irritated tweet in response to one of the latest happenings on the increasingly heated culture war front. As far as Peterson is concerned, the temporary suspension might as well have been a ban because he would, quote, rather die than delete the tweet in question, he said. And good for him. Another quote from Jordan. There are no rules on Twitter except don't do what we don't like today. They are always applied post hoc by algorithms and idiots bent on maintaining their woke superiority. You know, I'm glad that this happened to him. 
I'm sorry that it's vexing and irritating to him personally. He's had a lot to put up with. But we need big name people to experience this sharply to generate enough will and outrage to do something about it. And I strongly suggest taking a look at the video that Jordan put out, I think it was yesterday. He's now working with uh, the network, The Daily Wire, and he put out a six minute video talking about this and I whooped and hollered listening to it. It is righteous. He makes no bones about it whatsoever. He does not apologize. He calls Twitter sons of bitches, which is exactly what they are. I mean, it was absolutely a throwing down of the gauntlet, and I'm glad to see it. So definitely uh, look it up if you if you want a fist pump for something. Now let's let's talk about everyday vulgarity. We're going to go a little bit longer in this segment. Um, because my brain is melting and I can't organize anything. <laughs> Everyday vulgarity. And I, yes, I did come up with that title thinking of that ridiculous um, site, Everyday Feminism. If you haven't looked it up, you should. It's a laugh riot. I remember the first time I heard the word bitch on network television. It was a Saturday night during a Golden Girls episode, which was required viewing in my family, like Star Trek The Next Generation. I was alive when these things were airing for the first time. So I heard the word bitch in a Golden Girls episode, and my entire family gasped and cracked up. Everybody lost their shit. Of course, this was also the show that gave us the line, that woman has slut embroidered on her underwear, the recitation of which by Estelle Getty finalized my homosexuality. When there were some broadcast standards, there was a special little frisson in hearing a bad word sneak through, right? When there are taboos, breaking them is a little bit of fun. It's naughty. But it has to be done sparingly. It loses its charm if it becomes banal, if every other word is a cuss word, if every other joke is, is bathroom humor or sexual humor. But we live in a very different world today than we did in the late 1980s. And I have noticed that vulgarity, just disgusting references, words, images, that evoke defecation, um, sexual intercourse, are just popping up in everyday normal advertisements. Here's an example. This isn't even one of the worst ones, but it, but it, it shows you sort of the degree on this ramp that we're on. This is a picture of a bidet. Even the name of the company bothers me, Tushy. Isn't that cute? Isn't that kawaii? Sushi because it's for your tush. <laughs> it's this dude sitting on a toilet, fully clothed, but sitting on a toilet with, with his, his, um, his hands together like he's praying or going, namaste, you know, whatever. And do we need, do we need to see a man sitting on a toilet. Do we really need to have that close a visual suggestion of what we're referring to? Is that necessary? 
Do we need to also see that he has a squatty potty stool for his feet so that he aligns his colon for maximum efficient evacuation? Really? Tushy, it's not endearing and cute, it's gross. It's a little cute when you refer to a child's butt as his tush, but when you would apply it to adults, there's something, it just turns nasty. And it's, and it's more infantilization and age regression of adults that we've talked about many times on this show. And the tagline for this ad, give your butt the clean it deserves. Your butt? I know that butt is not a swear word, but it hits differently when it's used in an ad this way. You hear that difference, right? I just said but a moment ago in a way that everyone does and no one minds that. But listen to it in your head when you read it in a print ad in that context. Give your butt the clean it deserves. Ugh. Why must we be made to visualize the unclean state of an ass? Why? Why? And I can imagine an objection here. What a hypocrite I am, right? I swear on this show a lot. I tell dirty jokes. I use a lot of body humor. Well, context, context matters. This is a show for adults. This is not a show for children. It's not family viewing. It was never meant to be family viewing. I do it because I like it. I have fun, and a lot of you have fun when I do it. I'm here to entertain as well as to start conversations. Think of it like adult, you know, nighttime comedy, if you want. I also have a day job where I talk about serious issues, but in a professional capacity, and I don't use the F word. Context matters. There is a time and a place for vulgarity, for bodiness. A time and a place, not all times and all places, but, but that is what we are living in now, all times and all places. You see it, you see it just in the way that people walk down the street. People wear clothes that are quite frankly disgusting, showing as much skin as possible. Largely women, but I'm seeing men doing it now too. Displaying your underwear that's coming out of the back of your pants. Absolutely, I, I, right on the drive-in here, I, I noticed a bicyclist. And I've noticed this for a couple of years now. Remember how we used to make jokes about plumber's crack? Well, we joked about it because really one of the only times you'd consistently see some dude's butt crack is if he was doing a job like a plumber that required him to bend over and get underneath your appliances. Well, you see it every day now. I see it on bicyclists every single day. This guy is riding down the street with three inches of his hairy crack sticking out the back of it that I have to look at while I'm driving behind him. People don't care anymore. They don't care. They're not moved to pull over and pull their pants up. They literally don't care. How can you not care? I, when something like that has happened to me, I'm embarrassed and I fix it immediately. It's humiliating. Not for these people. And you know, the over-sexualization of women models in advertising has always bothered me. And women are over-sexualized in advertising. I'm not saying there should be a law against it. I'm just saying, in my judgment, 
there's too much emphasis on that. And, and women have so often been posed, regardless of what kind of product they're selling, whether it's a car or a roll of paper towels, they're often posed as if they're just sexual vessels waiting to be filled and used, you know? Wiping with a paper towel, but with that come hither open mouth look, huh, uh, it's gross, right? Well, now it's getting just as vulgar with men. Every day, I am seeing advertisements that refer to testicles, for example, as your boys, our shorts keep your boys separated, or we keep your boys cool. Stop it. Stop it. Or they just come right out. Some of these ads come right out and say your balls or your nuts right there in print. Not not on adult late night television, not in adult magazines, just on any old news website. It gets more. It gets worse. I'm going to show you a, a series of three photographs of a model selling trousers online. Penelope, can you put up the first one? Thank you. Take a look at this photograph. Um, those of you listening, these are, are images of a, a, a male model modeling pants. All you can see is about from his midriff downward. But it's what you can see that I'm pointing to. Look at the visible penis line. You can see his penis as clear as day to Sir dresses to the right, and now the whole world knows it. Have you ever seen an ad that so clearly shows a visible penis line? You know, they used to airbrush these out. I remember as a teen being titillated by the jockey ads, especially the ones with Jim Palmer and his, ooh, his yummy furry chest. Ooh, it's getting so hot in here. <laughs> And I was especially intrigued by the prominence in his jockeys. But like all underwear ads, and still, you can see the male, you can see the male bulge, but you can't see the actual outline of the penis and testicles. It's not supposed to be pornography. They soften that, right? Do you think this ad was an accident? Do you think they just didn't see that one? Well, think again. Here's the next one, same company. Set of pants number two, visible penis line. Or try the next one. Here's image number three, same thing. And no, it's not just one photograph that they recolored the pants on. These are three different poses. This is deliberate. At first, I thought maybe it was an accident as I consider this for the show. And so I ended up clicking on the ad and clicking through their gallery full of this, absolutely full of it. Crotch front and center, penis front and center. Now. These ads are clearly targeted to gay men. But seriously, come on. I, I'm curious, straight men, what's your reaction to clothing ads like this? I, I, I have no idea. I mean, yeah, I, I'm being a little bit cute and funny here, you know, saying, ooh, visible penis line, but, but I don't actually approve of this. I think it's gross. Does this make you want to buy these clothes? I'm really curious. So if, you, if you're a straight dude and you see this ad or you've seen ads like this, I'd really like to know 
exactly how it hits you and what you think about it, please leave a comment under this video on YouTube. Tell me what you think. And you know, it reminds me of just one quick anecdote, tangent, and then we'll go to the break. Um, it, it reminds me, I was having dinner with a couple of friends last week, um, and it was uh, two gay men, me and this other dude, um, and a straight woman, and we were having dinner, and this gentleman that I was having dinner with happens to be very well endowed. Don't ask me how I know that. No, I haven't been there. I just know things, okay? But we were actually talking about this, um, how vulgar people are. And he said, well, exactly what I would have said in his position. He's like, I choose my clothing carefully because I'm not trying to display that in any context outside of home or intimacy. You know, so I think about what kind of dress pants I'm wearing, where I'm going. I mean, he doesn't want to show that off like that. Um, so straight guys, what say you? Anyway, time to take a break. As a reminder, if you like the show, will you help it continue? We would really love to have your support. It does cost money to do this. And there are three ways that you can help keep Disaffected on the air and growing. Uh, visit Subscribestar.com or Patreon.com. Those are your subscription models. If you don't want to do that, one-off, one-time donations can be sent to us with PayPal. Just look up our PayPal email address. It is us at disaffected.fm. And everybody who donates gets access to our monthly Zoom hangouts for donors only. And thanks to some lovely volunteers I'm working with right now. You know who you are. We will be having more than one a month. So it's a great time to, um, to sign up. Thanks, and we'll come back and close the show. Twitter didn't like our old account, so we made a new one. Follow at DisaffectedP. That's Disaffected and the letter P for show announcements and links. If you want our sass and snark, come see us on Getter at DisaffectedPod. You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio too. We have audio only content that you won't find on any video platform, so don't miss out. Welcome back. The last thing I want to talk about today is what I'm thinking of as when charity becomes sophistry. This is from the Substack blog called Persuasion. There's a lot of good articles on there. And the author of this article is Matt Lutz. He's a philosophy professor. And it's an example of what I think of as a, a certain kind of philosopher's pointless quest to render sensible that which is actually nonsense, just plain old nonsense. And worse, it's meant to be nonsense. It's meant to baffle and stymie other people. Not what uh, the author Matt is doing, but what he's defending, what I think he's excessively charitably defending. It's about, this article is about the word woman. What is the definition of the word woman? 
And pe people have been trying to bleed the word woman of any sensible, stable, or coherent definition for years now, the trans activists have. And their goal is to confuse you, to blur meanings, to destabilize meanings so that words don't mean something consistent. That's convenient for them because then they can make that word mean what they need it to mean at the moment. And it's about gaining power over others. It's a linguistic game to gain power over other people. And some kinds of philosophers get way too enamored with this stuff and see an opportunity to defend something as some kind of sophisticated intellectual or, intellectual or philosophical move when it's just plain old grubby power grabbing and narcissism. Let me give you... Um, let me give you a couple of quotes here. First one, quote, one of the most virulent culture war issues in recent years has been a collection of controversies concerning transgender individuals. One of those controversies has been over the question of how gendered terms like man or woman should be defined. During Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's Supreme Court confirmation hearings, for example, Senator Marsha Blackburn demanded that Jackson define the word woman, Matt Lutz says. Okay, so right away, right at the beginning, you're already picking up on the author's political sympathies. He says that Senator Marsha Blackburn, who is a Republican, and that's why he says this, he says that she demanded that Jackson define the word woman. He didn't say asked. He didn't. He deliberately chose a word to that has a connotation of Marsha Blackburn illegitimately or aggressively and rudely broke the bounds of politeness and demanded that Judge Jackson define the word as if Marsha Blackburn had done something unreasonable or provocative. She did not. This is a Senate hearing. It is perfectly reasonable to insist yes, insist, that a Supreme Court nominee be able to answer a simple question like, do you understand what a woman is? Because there are going to be cases that come in front of you that turn on that very question. This is normal and reasonable. Right away, you know, you know where Matt's sympathies are. So early on in this essay, it seems to me, he tries to set up this rather inane question that no one is actually confused about and instead presented as a reasonable question that reasonable people disagree on. See, it's just like other words that can mean more than one thing. Let me give you some examples. Here's another quote. And Penelope, this is um, quote C2. As a starting point, it's important to remember that words often have multiple definitions. Sometimes a word can have several meanings that are closely related. Linguists and philosophers of language refer to this phenomenon as polysemy. For instance, the word hands can refer to either the body part or to people who do physical labor, typically with their hands." End quote. And he goes on, and I'm going to give you some more. I don't have any more to put on the screen for you. This is all just going to be spoken. So continuing. So a better question is not what is what the definition of the word woman is. It's how many coherent definitions there are. Buckle up, kids. 
There's at least one coherent definition. A woman is an adult human female. That's the definition you'll find in almost every dictionary. This is a biological definition. Adult, human, and female are all terms that refer to biology. Some have attempted to dispute the idea that female picks out a coherent biological kind by pointing to intersex individuals who have some but not all of the biological features associated with being female. But this does not change the fact that 99.98% of the human population has either all or none of the biological features associated with being female, specifically 2X chromosomes, female genitalia, and gonads that produce eggs rather than sperm. You see where we're going here. There's going to be another coherent definition. That's just one coherent definition. There's going to be another. What will it be? Quote, although the biological definition of woman is coherent, some philosophers have argued that the biological definition is bad in other ways. The biological definition of woman is, quote, trans-exclusive in that it counts trans women as men and trans men as women. <laughs> yes, yes, it is exclusive because that's a function of language. In order for a word to have a definition, it has to exclude definitions that are not that one. This is normal. It's kind of a law of the universe, it's a law of logic. Mm. Yes, it does count trans men and trans women as men and trans men as women because that is in fact what they are. Back to Mr. Lutz. Many find this morally and politically unacceptable. Their response is to engage in what is known as an ameliorative analysis. This means finding or creating another definition for the word woman that is, quote, trans inclusive not to have that definition stand alongside the biological definition, but to replace the biological definition. He's right about that. Ameliorative analysis doesn't aim to say what a term does mean. It aims to say what a term should be. Fair enough. He's right about that, too. They are being prescriptive. But, but he discusses how organizations like the Human Rights Council, which is another racket like the ACLU, how the Human Rights Council defines gender identity, and, and he says it's one's internal sense of being male or female or somewhere on that spectrum. And, and to give him credit, he does agree that this, this kind of maneuver won't do. Quote, the problem with this is that trans-inclusive definitions of man or woman define those words in terms of a person's gender identity. So this definition is circular in a particularly unhelpful way. A woman is someone who identifies as someone who identifies as someone who identifies as, et cetera, et cetera. This is incoherent. Yes, he is correct. So far, so good. But then he caves in. Quote, the Human Rights Camp Council or campaign, I'm sorry, I think I'm saying it wrong, it's human rights campaign, defines transgender people as those whose gender identity and or expression is at odds with their sex assigned at birth. There's no pushback from him. He just goes with sex assigned at birth. That's, it's, it's assumed, that's, it's now normalized. No philosophical unpacking of that at all. Not even an acknowledgement that that is 
a contentious approach. Quote, fortunately, there is a trans-inclusive definition of woman that avoids these difficulties. <laughs> Operators are standing by. The preceding accounts of what it takes to be a woman have all been proposed in the service of ameliorative analysis, a project which, in this context, usually aims to eliminate the biological definition of woman and replace it with something better. But we can make progress if we simply allow the biological definition of a woman to exist alongside the trans-inclusive definition, and even to define a trans woman in terms of a biological woman. This is what Sophie Grace Chapel, a feminist philosopher and trans woman, has suggested. Chapel doesn't think that we can give away any of these that we can give any of these terms neat definitions, but has suggested that being transgender involves wanting to transition from one sex to another. Duh. In short, biological men who want to be biological women are transgender women. Duh. Where's the progress in this? This is a solution? We just allow the two definitions, parts of which actually negate each other? to just sit alongside each other and get along really nicely? Okay. Quote, so these then are our two coherent definitions of the word woman. The first is a biological definition. A woman is someone who has the homeostatic cluster of biological properties that are characteristic of adult human females. <sighs> With this definition in hand, we can define a trans woman as a man who wants to be a woman or wants to be thought of and treated the way women are treated. And now we can give our second definition of woman. A woman is anyone who is either a woman. I'm sorry, I have to break in here. This is literally circular. This is a philosopher doing circular definitions. Notice this. Our second definition of woman, a woman is anyone who is either a woman or a trans woman. Adopting two definitions for the term woman means that everyone wins. Those who insist that woman refers to a biological category are correct. Those who insist that woman can be defined in social terms and that trans women are women are also correct. No, Matt, no. <laughs> you have the PhD. These are not two coherent definitions of woman. The trans definition is coherent only if you judge it by its own made-up internal logic. And if you ignore the fact that the trans definition is a forcible, forcible attempt to steal common meaning from a word that every human on earth agrees to, whatever language you render the word woman in. Something that corresponds to reality. He ignores this as if it weren't operative at all, as if it needed no justification and no special pleading. It most certainly does need some very special pleading. He acts as though also that he doesn't know that this trans project is a narcissistic one that aims to undermine meaning, to vague up words, and to problematize them. It's meant to shut up critics and put them on epistemologically unstable ground. That is its purpose. 
It is a power play. It is not anything higher or more elevated. That is all that it is. And he acts as though he doesn't know that. And it reminds me of linguist John McWhorter, who I complained about a few months ago. He had an article in the New York Times in which he pretended, McWhorter did, that he didn't know that the they-them pronoun agenda wasn't a natural language evolution. He acted as if it were just absolutely natural, like all language changes. Like Matt Lutz is doing here, John McWhorter likened they-them to an organic language development, such as what takes place over long periods of time with shifting meanings of words. This bothers me not just because that isn't true, but because I know that people like John McWhorter know it isn't true. I know he knows it. He's sitting there saying things like this while he knows it isn't true, knowing that I know he knows, or you know he knows. That really sticks in my craw, and Matt Lutz is doing the same thing. Let's call this what it is. It's cheating. This is cheating. It's not argumentation. It's cheating. It's having your cake and eating it too. The goal for people who want, who want these, these definitions to reign, especially trans women, is to associate themselves and, and to associate themselves in your mind and in your emotions with the connotations that the word, the actual word woman evokes without actually being a woman. But they want you to think of them in a womanly way without actually being that woman. But they don't want that to be too concrete because they need it to be flexible so that they can redeploy it if you start seeing behind the mask. It's just lying. It's just pretend. That's all. And the last statement I want to share with you, it's terribly naive. It's really naive, surprisingly so. This was not this was not a good commissioned article, Persuasion, whoever your editors are. This was not good quality. And not just because I disagree with it politically. It's, it's shit argumentation. It's not even analysis. Quote, this isn't linguistic prescriptivism. The terms man and woman clearly are used in multiple coherent ways. No, they're not. We should recognize that this is the case without fighting over the definition of gendered terminology. There's nothing to fight over. These words are just being used in two different ways. Oh, shut up. Come on, don't expect me to believe that you believe that load of hokum you just wrote. This project is, is in fact prescriptive. Yes, it is. They are not playing in your academic salon, Mr. Lutz. This is not a philosopher's salon. That's not what they're doing. They're not living there with you. You're there, but they're not. They're out in your office, in your university, in your institution, on social media, demanding, your word, remember that? I'm using it appropriately this time. Demanding that people use the term woman for men without a qualifier. No qualifier, no caveat. You will do it. They successfully get people fired. They get their reputations ruined. And they get them blacklisted socially every single day in front of the whole world over this shit. And you don't see this? I don't believe you. This isn't philosophy. It's sophistry. And that's the show. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next week.